0: Welcome to Nobug Skippin, the podcast where we have honest conversations about the horse industry. Whether it's debunking common myths and the science or lack thereof behind them, or discussing a complicated social topic, in No Bug Skippin' we get to the bottom of what matters most, how to best care for and advocate for our horses. Today I am joined by my wonderful friend and co-producer of this podcast, Allie, and we are covering the second part of our muscle soreness series. Last time we talked about what is actually causing horses to get muscle sore at the biological level. In this episode, we're going to cover something that I think many equestrians are going to find fascinating, which is the why and where your
1: horse may be sore. So, Ali, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me again, Maya. Always <laughs> great to be in front of the mic instead of over there.
0: Invite so. <laughs> over there, we mean our tiny setup um, at home podcast studio, which is <laughs> in my house. <laughs> so, Ali, you're an amateur horse owner. And you're honestly pretty new to it. You've only owned horses for a little bit less than three years. Yeah, that's right. So, I'm just curious what do you do? Let's okay. You know what? Let's rewind. Before you worked for me, what did you do if you suspected your horse was a little bit sore, or
1: even what would make you think that your horse might be sore? So I've only seen soreness in one of my three horses. Um, only two are rideable. The third is a baby. So the my older mare, she's about 13, um, and I suspected that she's had lower back pain for some time. Okay. Um, and when I noticed she would get very sore, it would be because I was, like, grooming her or using a scraper when I was washing, you know, after a workout and rinse her. Um, and whenever I'd go over those areas on her back, she would flinch and tighten up a little bit. Yeah. And so I suspected that, you know, either it was like we were working six times a week and maybe that was too much. So at that time, I just scaled back a little bit on the amount of work we were doing and being very mindful of the exercise we were doing. And outside of that, um, when we were in peak competition series, I did have a vet come out to do a chiropractic adjustment on her. They confirmed that she was sore in her lower back interesting. So that's really cool. I think that it was absolutely
0: lovely that you took note of how she was when you were grooming her and um, you noticed that she was kind of shrinking away and you suspected that there may be pain in that area. So that's a great first initial assessment.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that's it's good to know and be validated. I just suspected like ever since we've got her, she has some underlying issues and I still haven't had her really evaluated more extensively by like a routine body worker because we just don't have that in our area. So that's why I actually found you online um, because I I was looking for more resources to make them more comfortable.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and that honestly goes back to like, why it's so important to groom your horses and be touching them all over every day. Like, even if you don't have time to ride, I highly recommend just running your hands over your horse's entire body every day, because that way you kind of get a better understanding of what's normal for them and what bumps and bruises they might have and where they want to scratch you and where they don't want you to touch. And that gives you a really nice baseline. So kudos to you for being that in tune with your what i want to go over is some signs that certain areas might be um, in pain but honestly more important what the causes of those pain might be and i personally have it broken down into three different categories of causes so conformational so that's the way that the horse is put together Um, that's like the body and the skeleton that they're born with then environmental which goes into that's like the biggest one that i think is really like one of the main causes that we tend to look at. So environmental, that can look like saddle fit issues. You know, that's anything that the horse wasn't born with but that there's something in their environment kind of chronically causing them to have an issue so mm-hmm. saddle fit um poor bridle fit needing their teeth done um needing a different sort of riding situation or a different sport you know anything like that could be causing it and then finally trauma and trauma is actually the least common cause i mm-hmm. see of muscle soreness personally um Trauma being, like, day-to-day work or, like, an incident? So I should clarify acute trauma. Acute trauma. Honestly, you could look at everything as a little bit. You could even look at muscle soreness in two different ways as well, which would be chronic and acute. So I think of trauma as, like, the horse gets kicked in their butt in a field, and then their butt is really sore and swollen. Or the horse slips, and they strain their shoulder, or the horse is running around a whole bunch and like falls over and they hurt their back and put their hip out, mm-hmm. um, which unfortunately, a lot of those things you wouldn't actually even know if your horse did because it's so commonly a pasture or even an accident that happens in the stall if they get cast. Mm-hmm. But that might look like your horse is fine one day and then absolutely suddenly is not. Mm-hmm. However, that's actually very rare. Most of the time, there's something chronic building up over time and then. But unfortunately, because we see and touch our horses every day, it might be slowly building up over time and you don't even realize it. And then suddenly it's totally unbearable to the horse or to you.
1: That's terrifying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that it's there's like a I don't I don't know quite what the word would be. But like as things build up a lot of the time, it's almost like the frog in a boiling pot of water. You know, frogs will jump out of a boiling pot of water pot, frogs will jump out of a boiling pot of water, but you can slowly turn it on and they'll get boiled
1: alive because... Okay, witchy woman. Like, I, I get that we're in, we just came out of spooky season, but like, why do you know that?
0: <laughs> you haven't heard that analogy before? No. Oh, like slowly over time, things are slowly getting worse and worse. And then suddenly you find yourself hating your horse or hating riding them. Mm. And you're wondering, how did it get here? And it's probably because something's hurting them or there's something going on with them that's making, or you, that's making them feel very painful and really deteriorating your partnership
1: ugh, that's so sad it is and,
0: sad and I mean I've experienced it firsthand
1: ugh, yeah we the first time Maya told me her story about her heart horse I like sobbed and um, <laughs> I know we've talked about him a lot on this podcast and um, Wesley his picture Wesley. is right here it's so amazing to see how your experience with Wesley really informed like your entire career journey and how you've helped so many horses through that and i think that's so important to like bring up and just give you (laughs) a huge credit for like going to that place for your horse and then to be here and like helping a bunch of other people like me you know when i live out in the middle of nowhere and i really don't have access to body workers or people who even believe in the art of massage so all that is to say we appreciate you and i
0: appreciate you I wouldn't have the platform I have without you.
1: But, you know, I think that
0: I just want to help people who love their horse the way I loved my horse but was so lost. Yeah. And I hope that in this episode we'll explore a little bit maybe what some of those causes are because a lot of those causes, a lot of the causes we're going to explore are causes I have experienced myself firsthand. And a lot of them are things that I've also advised my clients on Mm -hmm. and they've been able to really make a world of difference on their horses. Mm -hmm. Um, so I figured we could kind of go in order. We could go, you know, confirmation, what I call environment and then trauma. Um, and then environment is definitely going to be the beefiest section of that. And then we can kind of touch on, since we almost since we kind of came up with it later we could kind of touch on chronic and acute muscle soreness as well Um, but we did actually really touch on chronic and acute muscle soreness in the first episode Because really chronic muscle soreness is most likely going to look like fascial adhesions and nerve impingement, whereas acute muscle soreness is a lot more likely to be DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, And that's a whole other subset that I absolutely recommend you guys checking out that episode if you haven't listened to it yet. You don't have to listen to it before you listen to this episode, but once you're done, just go ahead and listen to that episode. Yeah,
1: we'll say this is the second part in a three-part series, so if you listen to these in order, you'll probably get a little bit more out of each of them yeah i would agree um,
0: confirmation is basically defined as the way the horse is born so you know when your little baby came out um you know she was basically built a certain way mm-hmm. and okay. so she is a saddle break cross of some sort we don't know because her and her mommy are a rescue correct um, which is amazing shout out ally basically um just like us um when Horses are born, there's a certain way that they're most likely going to develop. Now, mm-hmm. of course, that is absolutely controlled by nutrition and different various things that happen to them um, throughout their life. But for the most part, if a horse is going to be around 15 hands and they're going to have a nice upright sloping shoulder, or they're or they're going to have an and they're going to have a nice upright shoulder and a powerful hind end and a certain set of their neck, they're probably going to grow up to look about that way. Um, and that's kind of determined by genetics.
1: While we're speaking on confirmation, is there a time when babies like in their development is like the ideal time to look at them? At least in my experience, mine has gone through some very awkward points in her growth. When she came out, I was like, oh, she's like really fancy. And then, (laughs) then you know, we get get to a like up down, you know, like a hip high. high. There was a point where like her neck wasn't long enough that she could graze. Because her legs are so long, so she'd have to, like, spread out like Bambi to get her head down to the – so all that is to say, is there a point, like, when they're looking to buy a yearling or a baby horse or of any age, like, at the confirmation – I'm not the person to ask. I think I've, I absolutely admit that
0: breeding is probably the like biggest deficit I have in terms of my knowledge. I would say breeding and anything to do with the foot and farrier rework, two things that I find so fascinating and wildly important, but two things I just haven't had the time to sit down and really like immerse myself in, in the way that I have a few other aspects of the industry.
1: I really respect you for saying that and being so honest and not just giving me like, some canned response. There are a lot of really good breeders who would be able to weigh in on that. I do
0: think it probably depends at some level on the breed. And how they develop a little bit differently. But people used to think that different breeds' spines developed at different rates. Um, And we're actually finding out due to recent research um, that that isn't actually true. We used to think that basically thoroughbreds and more hot-blooded horses developed a lot faster. And I think that's part of why we could excuse what we did with with what we do with what we do to thoroughbreds in the race industry um and warm bloods develop more slowly but it seems like they're finding that actually all of them just develop that slowly they all take you know seven or eight eight years years for their spine to fully develop um that was a piece of research that's been referenced to me. I don't have my paws on it currently, but I will dig around and look okay. for it and try to link it in the show notes if people are interested in.
1: That's awesome to know. And like, it is really a testament to taking it so slow with your babies yeah. when you start them because you don't know like how that work will impact at like their confirmation long-term too, if you start too much too soon.
0: You don't, but actually the opposite can be true as well. Oh. Um, yeah, because basically, and this is what, So when we do our young horse physiology, we want to do a young horse physical development episode with Dr. Chuck. Um, And I really want to dig into some of this research with him because there's actually research showing that the two-year-old racehorses that get ridden on hard ground end up a lot tougher than the ones that aren't. And it's because when we're young, we're so adaptable. Um, So basically, when you're really young, and you're exposed to really hard things, your body is just that much more able to, um, like, basically learn to adapt to that, you know, I think it's kind of similar how to like, I think there's a certain point in young athletes where they're never going to catch up to the people who started before them. And I think that there's people when they learn a language, you're never going to catch up to a language if you've started later than like what, like three or four,
1: yeah.
0: um, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of a barrier. So I think, but there is also a lot of damage being done to young joints and young bones. And the thing is no one has a crystal ball. No one, the research has not yet decisively said, you know, What is good or bad and what's the amount that we should be doing to our young horses because just letting them sit and never exposing them to anything hard is also not really ideal either. So there is some happy medium there, but no, as far as I know, no one actually knows what it is.
1: Oh God. It's, uh, I would
0: love to dive into that research. It yeah. is so fascinating. I've I, I've disappeared down many a rabbit hole on that exact topic. <laughs> at risk
1: of pulling more threads, yeah. I won't ask any more questions okay. on that okay. point. So we can go back to just general <laughs> confirmation and oh. how that affects um the yeah, I mean.
0: Yeah, I mean you actually could that I mean, but that string you're pulling on isn't unrelated because you could argue under the umbrella category. Of confirmation, you could argue if the environment changed for the horse to be more or less stressful when they were young, did it affect their confirmation? Did they get physically tougher or not?
1: That's, yeah. I mean,
0: mean, did it affect their bones? Even though that is the environment, but that basically that what happened to them as a young horse nutritionally, environmentally is going to affect their bone structure for the rest of their life for better or worse. A thousand percent. No, it's, it's fascinating. But anyway, to <sighs> move on from that's reading. A, that is no, an it's aside. well, and it's an interesting aside, right? Like yeah. there's just, cause we don't know. Right. And that's what makes it so interesting.
1: It's true. <laughs> Ethically, how do you even begin to conduct the research on that? Oh, there is no ethical way, I don't
0: think. I I mean, mean. well, I mean, but then again, there is the question of ethics, right? Like if you're sacrificing, you know, a hundred foals, and not even necessarily sacrificing. Well, actually, I think you would have to actually sacrifice them. But if you're sacrificing a hundred foals for the theorized greater good of like...
1: Every horse that comes after them.
0: Well, but then that's actually if anyone listens to the research. Like if the research, if we sacrifice a hundred foals and the research comes out that you should wait to break your horse's... Until they're older, or even not wait to break them, but wait to push hard on them until they're seven. Do you think anyone's actually going to do that? No. No. So. Yeah.
1: There's a, and, and and to be fair, there's a lot worse things being done to horses generally there in are, our day to day. So being it's,
0: broken too. We're early. not
1: going to change the yeah. ethics of the equestrian industry on this podcast, but maybe we can make people think a little differently. Yeah. So. Yeah, maybe we
0: can make a dent in it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, right, so I have a pretty long video dig into this in my course, e Massage 101, where basically I go over common conformational things that you see in a horse and then um, how it affects them muscularly so that people can have a baseline of like, okay, I'm not totally sure what problems my horse does and doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, you know, because in Equine Massage 101, they learn how to palpate all the areas and how to um, look for signs of all the areas that they may be in pain. Mm -hmm. Um, But they might say, like, oh, well, now that I've worked on my horse so consistently, it doesn't seem like they're actively in pain, but I want to be more preventative. Mm -hmm. So that section went over Problem areas that you might see paired with different conformational issues. I do like to always put in the caveat I do think that environment is so, tends to be so much more influential than confirmation, mm-hmm. but you can't escape confirmation the way you can escape environment.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's, it's born built into a horse from birth. right.
0: Right. You know, so for example, one of my best friends, Tori, who we will have on this podcast, her horse, Avi, um, no matter what you do to him or how you ride him, is built with a U neck. His neck is built upside down, basically. I mean, he look like his neck, he has like a swan neck. Um, He has no muscle on his top line. He has a big bulge at the base of his neck because it's so low. He will always look like he has been ridden incorrectly, even though Tori is a lovely, very soft rider. She rides her horses very correctly. Even when he's not in any work, he looks like that. He looks overdeveloped through the base of his neck. Um, And that's A, because of the way he was born, but B, also because the the way he was born in his neck and his um, shoulders. But that's also because he's built so towed in and over at the knee that the pain from his feet and his knees travel up through his neck and make him incredibly tight. He was actually born a dummy foal. So he also has some neurologic issues, and he's just overall built very unfortunately. He is literally one of the nicest horses you will ever meet, though. He's a very good boy
1: that's i mean that's amazing that he survived and um can we break down a little bit though the toes toed in yep. is literally when the hooves are pointed, pointed in. in and towards heels each other, out heels out and then over at the knee
0: over at the knee um basically what it sounds like it sounds like the knee is kind of bent all the time
1: like back underneath of them
0: no over in front over, so 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 okay so you're imagining um so this is the knee so it's like i can't really bend it like that so this is the so this is the normal front leg yeah this is it over at the knee okay
1: so it's just and what what causes that
0: It's the way they're born i mean i will and the hard thing too with some of this is that a lot of people will argue you can change a fair amount amount confirmationally when you change the shoeing or you change the trimming Mm -hmm. Um, for i have heard of some people really miraculously changing a horse's leg confirmation based on a certain level of correcting, shoeing, or even barefoot trimming. That's something I know nothing about, literally nothing about. So I really can't speak to it. So to
1: go back to where we were going with this, what do those specific conformational flaws cause muscularly to be wrong with the horse?
0: um, So they can cause winging um, or paddling. um, And I don't pretend to be a conformational expert. I'm more like to base my conformational knowledge on what I've learned through biomechanics and um, my own experience and I do like to I like to provide this information to people but I like to caution them that a it's way more likely an environmental cause it's is what your issue is and b um horses are individuals so it's Yes, a lot of these things can be A plus B equals C, but a lot of the time they aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do just like to caution that when I teach people about confirmation. Um yeah, basically because these different conformational issues change the way the horses move, it changes the way the muscles function. And some of these conformational issues um, can really cause the horse's body to fight against itself. And I'm not going to get into like the super specific ones, like toe in equals X or toe out equals Y, just because we do not have time for (laughs) it today. Um, But I will say if your horse, one of the common ones i see that is actually an a plus b equals y is if your horse is high low in the feet they have a thoracic sling issue there's no way around it they're going to have one
1: and what's high low so one
0: so horses it's up front at least it's almost always up front i guess in theory it could be behind um it's up front one foot is very upright and steep in the angle so like a above 45 degrees 45 degrees is like the ideal i believe or maybe more like 50 degrees and then the second one is a very low foot so it's more like a 35 degree angle um
1: which is the result of poor farrier work
0: no they're born like that they're born that way yeah they're born like that and it there's there was a piece of research i came across that basically theorized that that's actually most commonly caused by um horses as foals grazing really unevenly. So then it gets even into, was it a conformational defect originally or was it environmental?
1: Wow, that's wild! Yeah.
0: no, it's it's super interesting, and that is like that can be a devastating one. Not devastating is a little bit of a strong word. If you're at home listening to this, and you're like, "Oh my god, my horse has high low feet." Um, I there are many horses I know with high low feet competing successfully at the upper levels and being pretty sound, but that is something that you will not escape from. That is something that will reside result in pr- pretty significant muscular tension through the pectorals and the serratus and the thoracic sling. And that is one that I have helped various horses with immensely. Those horses do just need routine help because that is just at some point the way they're built. So high-low feet are one of those ones that I do highly recommend the owners learn to massage their horses if their horse has high-low feet or really any um imbalances when it comes to the lower legs in the front or the hind, because basically if there's an imbalance, so, you know, over at the knee, toed in, toed out, high, low feet, um, hawks that are way too under themselves or um, a hind end that's really straight or really camped out. um or sickle hawks, which many many warm bloods are. Any of those conformational defects are basically going to cause the horse's body to constantly fight against themselves. And when it's when there's a conformational defect up high, um, that that is hard. But it's those are things that I think the musculature, because there's so much more muscle up there, can help to affect and correct. You know, so for example, um, a horse with a slight U neck um, or an overdeveloped underneck neck um, or a horse that has a slight natural sway back, that can be really, really helped by exercise um, and by correctional exercises and pull work, you know, strengthening their core and engaging th- their thoracic sling. But those lower leg defaults are going to be a constant uphill battle against um, body pain and soft tissue and even hard tissue injuries. Almost all horses have something. So there's, you know, if you're listening to this right now, don't freak out. You know, no horse can, just like no person, can be confirmationally perfect. Um, Otherwise, they're at least $100,000 as a full. (laughs) But but, um, just be aware that in the areas that your horse lacks, they might need more help physically.
1: That totally makes sense. And, yeah. It's good to have those resources in place, you know, or at least you're giving the resources to people. Like you can either learn to do this yourself or you can find someone to help you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, honestly, with a lot of these as well, um, the strengthening and corrective exercises like pull work um, and, like, stretches and proprioceptive work is just so helpful because it really teaches your horse to be much more straight and balanced through their body. So if they're prone to being really uneven to compensate for something, they're that much stronger and more through in their body and they're more protected. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, It also makes them more fun to ride because they're not so crooked and you have to constantly compensate for it.
1: Yeah, if you've been on a really nice horse (laughs) who's just so balanced, it's like night and day sometimes after you've ridden. And then you realize, like me, that the way I was sitting on my horse was making her crooked. And I thought it was a her problem, but it was a me problem. And then I get on a different horse and I realize, like, oh,
0: that's my fault. I my so i always thought wesley had a bad left to right lead change and then he passed away and i had the opportunity to ride a lot of my friends really nice uh dressage horses and we discovered that i had a left to right lead problem and honestly even a left lead canter problem mm-hmm. i get i pretty frequently at this point get on well-trained horses and I can do, like, all of the stuff from the 4th and the pre-St. George on, like, most of them. But then it comes to picking up the left leg canter, and they're like, I'm just not really sure what you want for me right now. And there's just something in my pelvis that I'm not – I think it's pro-receptive. I want to start working with a personal trainer yeah. and get better about it. But that's – you know, as we're going through all of this, it is very worth you taking into account um, what some of your – flaws might be and what they what your horse might be compensating from you so it's always worth having a trainer sit on your horse and you going and sitting on other people's horses so you can kind of get a baseline of that
1: god i love that so much and it is just so true in my experience like the more horses that you can ride and feel that out for yourself but then also get that feedback from other people because you can ride for years and have that problem, and, yeah. like, I put that problem on my horse, and now I've been trying to <laughs> take it off my horse. And it's like, and I, then I feel horrible for her. It was my mistake. And, well, but you know, I human. just wasn't ed- educated yeah. enough to know until someone gave me literally two squishy balls and, like, put these under your tailbones and tell me how balanced you feel. And I was like, oh, I'm, like, hardcore leaning to the right because I'm right dominant.
0: Mm. See, I'm very left dominant, but here's the trippy thing. I had a biomechanics person have me like get on two scales to see which I lean to more. I'm totally even. I was like the only person in the clinic who was perfectly even. So I'm straight that way, but something's happening with that canter. I don't know what's happening there. But yeah, mysteries of life. You never stop being bad at riding.
1: (laughs) (laughs) At least I don't. <laughs> I've only been doing this for, seriously for three years. And it's like, there's always more to learn. You just yeah. never stop learning. Like every podcast I'm producing here, I sit over there in the corner now at my little my little desk station um, where I used to sit on the floor, guys. We were real run and gun there for a bit. <laughs> but you know, it's like we were literally in a podcast yesterday where I was we were talking about devices we don't buck with, which is another episode everyone should go check out if you haven't already. Um, and I was, like, mortified when I was hearing about things like <laughs> martingales and how they could really be very bad.
0: The wrong ones. Some martingales <laughs> like, are okay. Yeah, yeah. Using yeah. them in the
1: incorrect way. Like a lot of, like, like most horse tools.
0: Yeah, most, most of them are. Badly. Yeah, are built for a certain reason and then they're very rapidly abused, not on purpose. Yeah. Yeah, I think very few of us want to hurt our horses.
1: Yeah, we're not actively trying. At least most of us aren't.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, anyways, so I feel like we can kind of leave confirmation alone and go to environment because that's the big one. So, I I mean, that really could just have been the entire episode is all right. That environment could really be the entire episode. I could have just focused on environment, but I'm going to try to condense it. So I'm going to start with, you know what? Why don't you tell me what you think some of the most common causes would be?
1: From environmental issues? Yeah,
0: so basically anything that isn't like a traumatic trauma, like an acute trauma or conformational. Okay. So that's basically anything. So I would say
1: things like feeding position.
0: Oh, I wasn't even going to bring feeding position up, and that's a really good one. Thanks. Good job, Al.
1: Thanks. Well, it's something I thought about a lot because my horses naturally have bad posture. I have a saddlebred who yes. they tend to yes. go sway back pretty easily. She came with a slight sway back, then she got yeah. pregnant. Now it's worse. So... I've been feeding her on the ground so that she has to stretch down to eat as opposed to in a bucket or on the wall. On the hay wall. Uh And I've noticed that helps her out a lot, like to stretch down and be more limber in those areas.
0: I love that you brought that up because I talk about feeding position in my courses a lot, but I honestly left it off of my notes today, so thank you for bringing that up. Feeding position is so crucial, and I am sorry to tell – I'm sorry to say this because I did run a barn once and do all the stalls myself, but I do think hay nets for a lot of horses are detrimental, especially, I really think for any horse, because if you think about it, basically every time they're pulling from that hay net, they are inverting their head and neck and they're pulling the soft tissue structures of them, which is the opposite of what we want them to do, period, Mm -hmm. Um, and You know, number two, I think they can also have some respiratory negative effects. I think overall please, please, please feed your horses on the ground. I have seen, I have some clients who feed with like the triangle feeders. You know, it's basically just like a wood board in the corner of a stall. So there's a little triangle and they put the hay in there. And that seems to work quite well to be neat. And I also have never seen a horse injure themselves at all with those. So that's kind of a nice, like almost in between of like, it's on the ground and it's safer, but it's a little bit more neat than just throwing it on the
1: ground. Granted, I've never seen one of those. I would be so terrified my horse would just stick their leg in there and, like, do something stupid.
0: I do think, though, they're big enough they could just pick it right back out pretty easily. That's good. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I've had a lot of horses get their um, shoes stuck in hay nets. Yeah. Even which, if they're up pretty high. Totally. So I still would go for that over a hay net personally. Yeah. But we are all shaped by our experiences. Like, I can hear someone right now commenting on this podcast saying, oh, well, I had a horse, like, break its leg in one of those. Well... You know, we we all have stories like that, so we all have our preferences. But I, I don't think hay nets are the best choice. I do strongly prefer horses to get fed on the ground. Because also, if you think about it, you know, if you want your horse and you're constantly trying to correct them and get them to bring their back up and to drop their head and neck and engage their shoulders, um, if you're only doing that for 45 minutes a day and they're eating from a hay net the other 23 hours of the day, which do you think is going to win? Yeah. Yeah,
1: I'm going to go with the one who's eating from the ground.
0: Yeah. So feeding position, what else?
1: Feeding position. um, Saddle fit.
0: Saddle fit is like the number one. And that one sucks because there's not a clear, there's not an easy answer. Um, you know, of course, we have come up with what is the best I feel like I can do for the equestrian community, which has come up. I teamed up with two different saddle fitters to basically create a how to check for saddle fit and defects at home course. Um, I think it's really helpful and it's going to help a lot of horses and riders to prevent saddle pain. Of course, it doesn't take the it doesn't take the place of a professional saddle fitter. But I see time and time again um, people with just blatantly, horribly fitting saddles. Um, and my saddle fitting friends weren't totally willing to take a stand on this because they didn't want, like, any company getting mad at them. But as a body worker, I'm willing to take a stand on this. Please use wool, not foam. Oh,
1: that's good. I will.
0: I will. I'll, I'll say it. You know, I, I've seen a lot of horses be pretty sore from f- – foam saddles see
1: and like because i'm relatively new to this yeah. the first time i ever heard that debate brought up was on the podcast here when you talked to sydney
0: yeah um
1: which is a great episode also not to keep plugging the podcast but right um i had like and i could not i have to assume my english saddle is flocked with wool but i don't know okay You can kind
0: of, once you're a little bit experienced in it, you really can tell from, like, feel. Like, you can kind of touch it and Mm -hmm. feel it if you go and feel a bunch of wool cells and then a bunch of foam. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that what I just can't figure out is what the benefit of foam over wool would be. Um, You know, basically, like, wool is, first of all, shock-absorbing in a really nice way. Some people, some companies could argue that their foam is shock absorbing um but i can't imagine in a world in which you know the whole point of something being shock absorbing is over time the whole point of something being shock absorbing um is that basically it's able to like compress and then release Mm -hmm. and almost any material is going to compress over time as it's used more and more the pro about wool is that you re flock it and you adjust the flocking pretty often to both fit your horse as they grow and change but also to refresh the flocking so it continues to have that really nice shock absorbing quality mm-hmm. foam you a can't adjust it if your horse changes shape and b it i I have to assume it's compressing over time yeah. and um, there's the only thing you can do is totally reset the panel or buy a new tree so I just I can't imagine a world in which I would choose a foam over a wool and I don't really know why anyone does other than affordability right um, for the saddle company because it's the foam saddles aren't cheaper as far as I can tell um, I I have heard of like literally like maybe two horses in my lifetime who do tend to prefer foam saddles to wool, which great, right? Yeah, like it sure. doesn't, you know, right. like cool, you know, great, but if it like it works for you awesome, but yeah, generally but generally I have noticed horses be more body sore in um foam saddles. Mm-hmm. And but really the foam versus wool debate isn't nearly as important as just having a saddle that fits reasonably well. Yeah. Ideally, perfectly well. You know, ideally, you have a saddle fitter come out every four, three or four months, um, you know, and check your horse's saddle fit as they grow and change and as the saddle changes um, and as you change even and as your riding changes. Um, But... Uh, and you know, also in a perfect world, you know, you are able to buy a saddle custom to you and your horse, Mm -hmm. but if at least you can learn some ways of checking for saddle fit, um, just to make sure your horse has wither clearance and the saddle is balanced and it's not impinging on their shoulders or bridging on them and has pressure points through the, Um, saddle and it's it gives them enough spinal room at least if you have those checks you're kind of checking off all the major boxes that isn't doing major damage
1: yeah and like hearing you talk through this and helping produce the course that we're releasing currently it's just helped me so much because I do not have easy accessible options for saddle fitters in my area and for a long time I've I kind of thought that maybe my tree was too narrow and it might be impinging on my horse's shoulders and now I do know that. So I'm looking for a different saddle. But it's, you know, and it's like, and I've tried some other saddles like of friends on her and ridden her in that and she goes a lot better and is a lot more willing in a lot of ways. So really it is just such a huge help to be able to visually see where you palpate, where you look, how you're measuring those differences. So I would really encourage anyone who's struggling at home, With saddle fit to check out the course because it has really been invaluable to me to at least get me started on like a different path, um, and to know what to look for and be able to try to like take my own measurements and at least do like a video consultation with someone.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I mean there are a lot of there are saddle fitters out there now who will either travel. You know, if you hear of a good one like. Um, try to see if you could get a group together and they travel to you. But there are also saddle fitters who will do a virtual consultation. Then you can ship your saddle to them for them to fix. Um, So, you know, there are options out there. And just don't be afraid to, like, please, if, like, if you have a horse, please do not let saddle fitting take the back burner. Like, I think that's, like, my biggest thing. Like, I think so many of us, and absolutely myself included, like, not even just, no, I'm not even saying just before I became a body worker and I knew better, but literally up until this spring, you know, I, I had started riding a new mare and I needed a saddle for her, but I didn't know if she was going to work out. I was leasing her. There was a whole situation with like basically I was like kind of retraining her. She hadn't been ridden in like seven years. And first of all, I didn't know how she would change. And I also didn't know. Um, if it was going to work out with her at all, so I didn't really want to spend money on a saddle, but also, so I, you know, I borrowed a friend's saddle and I kind of looked at it and I was like, mm, good enough, you know. I was like, I feel like I know like well enough. I have this much experience. I've shadowed saddle fitters. I was like, I was like that about looks good enough. And you know, I rode her and like at first she was really really good, and then over a few months she started getting like pretty grumpy. Like not only, um, like not only under saddle she felt a little bit sore, but also like actually getting on her is what I noticed the biggest difference is actually mounting seemed to mm. hurt her a whole lot. And then I had a friend out who is a saddle fitter and she was like, oh my God, Maya, please do not ride in this. And I was like, really? Like, I was like, you know, it has weather clearance. It looks like, it looks like flush to her side. And so, and she showed me all these things that were wrong with it. I just had no idea. I just had no idea. And now, because I've taken all this time to learn about saddle fitting for the course, It would be so much easier to just check to see if the major points to make sure a saddle isn't going to do major damage to a horse. Of course, course if I, you know, had a horse who I was buying a saddle for, I would have a professional fitter out. But at least, you know, in a pinch, I can take a look at everything.
1: Totally. Because if you think about how many hours you're riding that horse a week in that saddle. I feel bad looking back on it. Yeah. And I do too. And it's like some of the things like we've done really, really hard work. Yeah. And... If you are wearing something that is constantly pinching you or it's just it's sad to me and I feel bad. But mm-hmm. we again like this is this is all we can do right is just learn to be better and yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Anyway. So yeah, saddle is like saddle, the and, saddle then and then girth. I also think poorly fitting girths, which is a whole, like, I don't even want to get into that because that's <laughs> such a whole thing. But just consider your girth fit, um, especially if your horse is sh- sore through their shoulders. Um, very possible. And they're girthy. Very possible they have a girth that isn't fitting them properly. Um, And then bridle fit and bit fit are important as well when it comes to horses with TMJ or neck issues. Mm -hmm. I think actually, as many people don't know that, don't know saddle fit, I think a lot of people are willing to have saddle fitters out. I think a lot of people do not know as much about bridle fit as they think they do, including myself until last year when I interviewed a bridle fitter, Sam, and I had her interview. Um, I put it into my TMJ masterclass. So she goes through top to bottom how to fit a snaffle bridle. And I learned a lot. And I'm a lifelong, lifelong equestrian who went through the highest levels of Pony Club. But again, they're just all of these things are so complicated, and we really tend to take them for granted. Um, But if the more we go out and educate ourselves, I think the more we can protect our horses and actually just prevent issues. Because the goal of my courses isn't for you to be massaging your horse for an hour a day. Like, that's not the goal. You know, the goal, I mean, if you can, awesome. Yeah. But the goal is for you to be able to massage them once a week, once every other week as a, as a maintenance, as a partnership building routine, um, as a preventative routine. But I don't, you know, massage isn't the, I don't want massage to be a band aid. I want you to look at your horse holistically and prevent them from getting sore and make the interventions you need when it comes to environment and make and implement exercises you need to strengthen them and then let massage fill in the gaps.
1: Yeah. That's so well said. And Actually, like, you really hit me with something. Like, I feel like some people might go into the course assuming, like, oh, I need to do this every day. Like, I don't have time for that. It's overwhelming. I can't do it. Right. But you just having that skill set and being able to do it once a week, once a month is better than not doing it at all. It is, And being able to tell where your horse hurts, which is the point of this series, like, and why and what might be contributing to that is, like, life-changing for you and how you can look at your horse.
0: Yeah, because also it's also nice to know when your horse is probably not hurting too, right? right? Because like, you know, I used to lay awake at night and be like, is it me? Is it him? Is it a training issue? Is it a pain issue? And so it's nice to also just be able to go down your little checklist and be like, okay, now it's time to call a vet. The vet's given them a clear bow. Okay. Now it's time to send them to boot camp, or now it's time to get my trainer more involved than they already are. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just things like that for peace of mind too, is like, that's one of the biggest things for me. Got it. But, yeah, it, Sorry, it, I wanna like cut us off from just like yeah. plugging the course this I entire know, episode. I feel like we've been but. very plugging <laughs> but, but it is like
1: yeah. like to be fair, again, the reason the whole reason I'm here right now is because you were a good resource. That's <laughs> all I wanna be.
0: I just wanna be a resource for people. Yeah. I just want to help people who were in my shoes. But anyways. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So okay, so saddle fit, girth fit, bridle fit, bit fit. All juicy, juicy subjects we could do entire podcasts on. But just keep in mind, don't take any kind of equipment for granted, essentially. Absolutely. Um, next up environmentally would be um, one that I don't see ever talked about. I don't even know if I've talked about this before is ulcers. Mm. Mm. And um, would love someone to do research on this. I don't think anyone will because it's not, maybe it's not as interesting to other people. Um, anyways, I shouldn't I shouldn't preface that, but I have found so many horses who have ulcers to have pain through their lower back and um, even really just their entire back and even mm-hmm. into their hind end mm-hmm. because they're so uncomfortable through their abdominals. They don't want to use them, and they're just so braced.
1: That makes a ton of sense, and I've never thought about it that way.
0: And I've never seen anyone else talk about it, and I don't – like, I'm – I don't know. Like, I it's it's to me so obvious, but also, um, yeah. I mean, I just think that that's something people should take into consideration. Yeah,
1: and as a body worker, can you see it from the outside when they're undiagnosed? When you when you're treating them and you see like they're struggling on those areas, can you say, I suspect they have ulcers based yeah. on the way they're carrying themselves and how yeah. they react to this?
0: Yeah. No, there are a couple different little places that I can palpate. And like, if the horse is trying to kick me, I'm like, you really need to get something involved. And even just like, maybe not even that you have to scope them and do an ulcer treatment, but there are a few different supplements that I really highly recommend.
1: It's so much of the time I see people like pro, like, um, not proactive, Proactively? Is that the right word? Proactively, Proactively use ulcer yes. treatments just because you know they're having some issues, like yes. training issues with their horses, and they just give that to them to see if it'll help. Yeah. And I don't think in every case that's the like magic cure, it's but not sometimes it is. And
0: there is something to be said for not overusing mm-hmm. ulcer treatment because that can also have a lot of mm-hmm. negative side effects, and that could also be its own episode. I'd love to talk to a vet about that because um, ulcers is just like – oh, my God, it's such a freaking issue, right? But, yeah, just from my body worker perspective, if your horse has had a history of ulcers and stomach pain, very probably they have some back pain and lower back pain That's as well.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, all right, next ones. Where are other ones you thought of?
1: Environmental. Um,
0: can go over riding. Briefly.
1: Yeah, I mean, so riding, the way that you're riding your horse.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> Sorry, did you hear me crack? Yeah, <laughs> the old bones of a twenty-five-year-old bodybuilder.
1: Oh, ancient she is. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I'm older than you. I can say that. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I think I would. I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't mention the way people ride, um, and perhaps. I almost want to get into disciplines but like that could be its own episode you know let's i just think like
1: gently like bullet
0: bullet gen- okay let's bullet point disciplines yep. dressage most horses have a neck and pull issue a lot of them also have gluteal pain as well from the sitting required um but because many many horses and many many dressage riders ride um, a little bit incorrectly and they focus more on the neck frame and less on actually getting the back up and through and allowing the neck to fall into place. I do see more neck tension in most dressage horses, even if it's not a glaring issue of like the horse being ridden hyperflexed or in roll curve, mm-hmm. It's kind of just one of those. And I, I hate, I don't mean to dismiss the um, importance of Correct riding, but I do think there's a learning curve to basically like a lot of people when they start learning dressage, they just focus on the neck and the frame because it's right in front of them. Therefore, some neck tension presents. And then slowly as they learn and get better and better, hopefully... No, that isn't always how it works, but hopefully as they get better and better and they learn more about picking the back up, the horse does a lot better and is more comfortable. But I do see neck tension in dressage horses pretty frequently.
1: Yeah, and I think that translates to some other types of English sports across the yeah. country, like especially in the Arabian community, which I am in. Yeah, um, Everyone is very focused on the frame and being correct in the frame. Yeah, And actually advice that I've gotten many times is that you should hyperflex the horse While you're practicing so that when you go into the show ring, they will do it correctly.
0: I hate that. And I,
1: yeah, I really don't like that at all. And it's always made me uncomfortable. And I really don't like to, like, even when I didn't know anything, I didn't like to do that. Um, But that was what they were. Just looking at it, it
0: looks uncomfortable. Yeah. Much less now you know so much about how bad it is for for,
1: like, the nuchal ligament and how you're flexing. Up and in, in you know, some horses are more built for that than others, and like I do have a saddlebred who the breed is more in, naturally inclined to come up. But right. over hyperflexion is hyperflexion, like it's right. it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. There's there like I'm not gonna sit here and say it's, yeah. bad. it's, just, it's just bad, it's just bad. Um,
0: so but, yeah. jumping horses, any sort of jumping horses, tends to have a lot more tension through their hamstrings and their gluteals because of the amount of push required to jump. Um, that's kind of just like almost always there in jumping horses. It does seem like, um, bigger jumping horses tend to have a fair amount of shoulder tension as well, um, because the shoulders are what catch, uh, all of the weight of the horse when they're on the backside of the fence. Mm -hmm. So shoulder tension, especially, um, I noticed a lot through the triceps, um, in uh, racing horses as well, um, but really um, a lot of horses have tricep pain also who are um, just to touch back on, I think, let's just cut that out. I have noticed a lot of jumping horses have quite a bit of tension through their shoulders as well um, because they land on the backside and that's what catches the horse. Um, other disciplines I've noticed, it seems like, again, you know, I do caution people the horse is an individual. I think the environment and their confirmation is honestly most of the time more important than their job, which sounds counterintuitive um, because you would think, well, it's what they do all day. Right. But um, really you're only working your horse 45 minutes, five ish days a week. Probably their environment um, is a, you know, if their environment looks like their tack, that's what's on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, their uh environment is like their food um or the fact that they have ulcers they're dealing with that 24 7
1: right
0: um so that's maybe something that some people might find surprising
1: that makes sense to me and yeah and i mean also something we talked about on the first episode in this series is if you're a weakened warrior versus if you spread your training out over the week yeah you know because i mean it's not uncommon for people to go take their horse on a 4-hour trail ride on the weekend when they <laughs> may not ride them the rest of the week. Yeah. And that that should be factored into the equation too.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that being careful as a rider, I think I have noticed a lot of horses um, get a lot more sore when they aren't subjected to a nice um, warm up and cool down period as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I can time it, I can a lot of the times tell the difference between a horse that's ridden mostly professionally and a horse that's ridden mostly by an amateur, because a lot of the time the amateurs actually will take the time to warm up and cool down the horse and the professionals won't.
1: Oh my God! I really thought that was going to be the opposite. You just blew my mind there. I I really knew where you were going with that, but no. Oh my God! Sadly, I well, and here's the thing: they don't have the time. They don't
0: have the time. They're riding 12 horses a day, and I'm not saying that that's most all. I'm not saying that's all professionals by any means. um, But as someone who's been in a lot of those barns, that is what it tends to look like to me. And it's not even what I notice is that the um, professional horses are overall a little bit like harder to the touch muscularly because they're tense because their muscles don't have as much time to warm up and cool down um but they don't have the like they're like an overall tenseness because of that but they don't quite have like the specific tenseness of being ridden incorrectly as Mm -hmm. often like their back you know if they're it's a good dressage rider riding them Um, or a good event rider, a good show show jumper that I know of, you know, their back is being ridden nice enough. They have a pretty good back situation. They're typically pretty even and their neck is in a pretty good situation as well. It's just kind of more of an overall tension, Mm -hmm. whereas the amateur might not be able to ride them up in the back. So they might have a back issue or the amateur might ride them behind the vertical. So they have a a neck issue, Um, but they might be just a little bit softer toned in the body.
1: Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. And, and wild, and I mean it is true to some extent. Like I've seen, at least at our barn, the cadence is: you warm up, you work, and then you go on a trail ride, a walk, a walk, a long walk after.
0: Well, I love that you do go at least on long walk after, but yeah. please take the time to at least walk your horse for like fifteen minutes. Yeah. Um, and then walk your horse for at least ten or fifteen minutes after your ride. If it's a hard ride, do more like twenty. Yeah, I would say. Um, and you can do that under
1: saddle and it's fine. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: Under saddle is totally fine. Okay. I mean, I think if you have a horse with any sort of back issue, it is worth getting off of them to ba- essentially just give their back a break. Right. Um, but yeah. 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 I no, think that's great. And I, w- I have something controversial to say. Oh, I'm ready.
1: I'm always <laughs> ready. Like give me the tea, Maya. Um,
0: the warm up is not
1: a place for a lateral movement. I agree with that. Why do you agree with that? Because I think you have, to, you have to warm up before you ask for lateral movement. Why do you think that? Because it's um, hard to do, harder yeah. to do. And yeah. if you're doing that when they're cold and they aren't sufficiently warm, Potential you, damage you to the risk, joints. Yeah, yeah, to the joints and the um, tendons. Yes, perfect. Yeah. Excellent. Yes, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah,
0: and so what a lot of people don't realize is that horses aren't meant to go sideways – horses I've never
1: framed it like that though that's very
0: horses did insightful. not evolve to go sideways so horses are really good at going straight it is very hard for horses to go on circles and to go sideways and what do we do when we warm them up circles and, Lots. and a lot of us go sideways and? i've i've always incorporated sideways and a lot of circles in my walk routine That's Um, actually
1: really true in a lot of shoulder ins and outs.
0: Yeah. Because, you know, basically you're like, well, I'm going to be a good, you know, good horseman and give them the 10 minutes to warm up. But what you aren't, what you don't realize is if, um, you're walking them and doing a ton of lateral work, and a lot of it, a lot of people are doing really steep lateral work at the walk because it's so slow. Um, those tendons and ligaments in the joints are not warmed up, and horses are not meant to go sideways. And I actually think that's a big reason why we see so many suspensory injuries in dressage horses um, because the suspensory ligament is holding that lower leg, um, a, a big part of it is holding it's a major player in holding the lower leg together and you know essentially when you're constantly stressing um th- those different structures by being placed unevenly which is not what they're meant for um i just think it starts to degrade
1: that makes a lot of sense i do have yeah. a question though yeah so what about like flexing them and stretching on the ground prior like bending their neck Bending their neck.
0: Neck is okay. I mean, neck, because the neck is meant to go side to side. That's right. Like, the neck is this giant pendulum that's incredibly flexible.
1: we're talking about the body.
0: We're talking about the the legs.
1: And the legs. Yeah.
0: If you want to, like, bend your horse a little bit to the inside as they're walking, bend them a little bit to the outside as they're walking, that's fine with me. Okay. Because those structures are very...
1: We're talking about crossover.
0: We're talking about crossover uh, yes. in the lower leg. Yeah, because – and I also think that that can be a collateral ligament issue as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, that's that's my controversial take on warm-ups. I think I think people need to just let their horse warm up, just leave them alone.
1: Well, it's like it, – it was like when – so my horse was pregnant, and then after she had her baby and I got up, the first couple rides, I we had this beautiful half-pass wh- oh, before awesome. she was pregnant. Yeah, and it was so – like, sh- she's yeah. so fun to ride. And – my other horse, we were really struggling with the half pass. And so I was like, I'm gonna get on Sienna and we're gonna do a half pass. And my trainer was like, No, 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 no. <laughs> like you have to build her back to that point. Yeah. She's been off for seven months. Yeah. You know, half and passes I was like, are hard. Half passes are hard. Yeah. And I was like, but I miss it so much. It's like, too bad, girl. You gotta work for it. Like, yeah. what do you think? Yeah. But I was I love that he stopped me and was like, No.
0: <laughs> well, and I think that a lot of people think of dressage as more of a trick that you learn and once it's installed it's there and less as a physical movement like you wouldn't have you know let's say you and sienna were jumpers you wouldn't have taken her right out from pregnancy and jumped her three foot
1: absolutely not
0: but dressage requires the same level of fitness and tendon fitness and resilience that needs to be worked up to
1: and it's yeah, it's an despite it being surface level a little bit more boring. <laughs> not I'm sorry, that was rude. Despite surface level being stressage is like more like it's work on the flat, right? You so can it's call it boring. It's, it's not <laughs> boring not though. It's just, you know, it's not um adrenaline inducing like jumping yes. or cross country. Yeah, that's it's, true. Um, or eventing. Is cross-country the wrong word for eventing? I keep saying No, no,
0: cross-country is the second phase of eventing. So eventing refers to dressage, cross-country, show jumping. Got it. Cross-country okay. is just cross-country. Got it. Yes. Okay. All right, so the last one would be, and we haven't even touched on things like kissing spine, mm-hmm. um, and I just want to touch on the fact that kissing spine, your horse is going to have a lot of pain in their back and honestly probably through their whole body. I feel like that's kind of enough said. Kissing spine could absolutely be its own episode. And if you guys want me to talk about it, just uh, leave a comment on one of our Instagram posts and let me know, you know, anything you, anything I've talked about today, if you want me to do a deeper dive into it, please just let us know in the comments on our Instagram or, you know, send us an email, whatever, but we're happy to talk more about those, but to move on to acute um, trauma. So trauma, you know, this is the least common one I see. I just want to very briefly touch on it so that people are aware of it. You know, trauma might look like a horse getting kicked in the field um, and then getting really muscular sore from there, of course, because they basically have a bruise. Right. Um, it can look like a horse slipping and falling and really torquing and putting out their back the same way we would if we slipped and fell. Mm-hmm. It can look like a horse rearing up and flipping over. That's one that can be pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, those are some of the big ones horses have millions of ways of to hurt themselves. So, you know, use your imagination, but that's basically what some of those look like. And, you know, getting kicked a horse is most likely going to have some swelling and be painful. And then they may have a hematoma or they may have residual scar tissue that needs to be g- very gently massaged or PEMFed afterwards. But please, if they have any sort of acute issue kicked or whatever, please just work with your vet when you're starting to implement you know, either massage, stretching, exercise, you know, if you, if you bring their horse in from the field and they're suddenly very, very painful, um, that's a really good time to call the vet. Even if it's not that like one leg is hurting, if you, you're bringing your horse in and they're having a lot of trouble walking or they just seem overall really muscularly stiff, unfortunately, we didn't even touch into, into this, but it could also be a disease or a disorder like tying up.
1: Right, um, right.
0: So muscle soreness is not a joke. Muscle tightness is not a joke in horses. You know, horses are about, of all of their body mass, about 70% muscles. So really take it seriously. You wouldn't ignore any major organ or muscle system. And the, the muscles are a very important musculoskeletal part of the musculoskeletal system.
1: Totally.
0: What I also want to touch on under trauma Is trauma that isn't directly related to the muscle, you know, so maybe not getting kicked or pulling their back out, but trauma that happens somewhere else but ends up to compensating. So that might look like a horse doing a suspensory um, and then the way that their body is going to continue to compensate. You know, if you broke your leg, I can basically guarantee that you're going to have back and hip pain. Mm -hmm. You know, anyone who's listened to this has experienced that. Anyone who's listened to this and has broken their leg has experienced that. Uh, It's the same thing with horses. Um, And honestly, I think it's even worse because they really can't escape any of their legs. You know, the way like we can sit down and lay down. We spend a lot of our time sitting and laying down. They spend almost 100% of their time standing um, and walking around. You know, that's their whole life. So if something hurts, whether it's an abscess, whether it's a suspensory, whether it's arthritis, any of those things are going to lead them to compensate and become an even in their body and uneven an in their musculature and tension and um, create tension in various areas protectively. You know what we talked about earlier with fascial adhesions. You know fascial adhesions start to lay down to basically protect an area that hurts um, or needs more support. You know. And unfortunately, with compensating, that is one of the most complicated topics to talk about. And that could, again, be its own episode because...
1: Several episodes. I mean, there's just so many... I can imagine there are so many individual circumstances which can lead to an infinite number of problems.
0: Yeah. And I think that a lot of people... So this is a hot take. And I'm very happy to be told... I'm very happy to hear other people's opinions on this I think a lot of people and body workers specifically like to say that they can predict the way a horse is going to compensate. And in my experience on a lot of different injured horses, I don't think it's very easy to predict how they're going to compensate. You know, for example, a lot of the time people think, oh, if a horse injures one leg, they're always going to throw the weight diagonally to get farthest away from it. And that is, I think, probably the best rule of thumb you can follow, but you can't always follow it like that. You have to actually learn to check for tension and you have to learn to palpate and you have to learn to feel the horse and know what you're looking at when they're moving as well. Um, Because horses just do not compensate always the way we think that they're going to. And honestly, a big part of that is probably because they really might have pain that we don't even know is going on. So yeah. we might just be looking at one issue and saying, oh, well, they're compensating from this one issue, but there might be two or three other issues that they have or they have had that we don't even know about that they're also compensating for. And it basically becomes whatever is screaming the loudest yeah. in their body. So compensating is very complicated. And honestly, like that's one that you should definitely learn about for your own education. But that's one thing that just is like a life lifetime of learning. It's hard. So the next episode, I'm finally going to give you guys more actionable advice on what you can do when your horse is muscle sore, um, other than just massaging them, which is my favorite thing to do. We're going to dive into one of my very favorite things research. We're going to dive into what the research says about what helps muscular soreness, um, either delayed onset muscle soreness or nerve pain or muscular pain that looks like that way, Um, and what you can do at home as a horse owner. I'm going to put a lot of actionable advice into that episode. I'm really excited about it.
1: I'm excited about it too. can always use the actionable advice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Allie, what do you not buck
1: with after this episode? After this episode. Oh, goodness. Um, Okay, so it's something I already didn't buck with, but I'm just not going to buck with um, feeding systems that are high up. Yeah. I would prefer to feed on the ground always, as long as you can do that in a safe way, Um, Mm -hmm. especially with my long-necked, sway-backed horses. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> awesome. you're just going to set them up for success so set
0: so them up for success, I love that and Alan. their environment perfect, but well thank you so much for joining me today
1: thank you so much for having me, I'm excited to come back for the last part in this series
0: so. how to help your horse who's muscularly sore, can't wait thank you thank you